This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Framed PCs. Wax Museums. Matt Colville. And Dr. Johnson versus the Cock Lane Ghost. Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds. His mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini Mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Goodnight Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures... The crunch of Doritos and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But hold on, the confines aren't that friendly, and those aren't Doritos. That's a that's a donut that the cop is eating across the room. He's not a, even got a benevolent gaze. What's going on? We're innocent, I tells you, innocent. I don't care. That's the that chilling dialogue is the sort of thing you will hear <laughs> if your PCs have been framed. For a crime, dun dun dun, which is, I think, actually probably not even a frame given most PCs. It's like we've connected <laughs> you to a series of suspicious arsons and murders. Uh, yeah, that that would be us. And I'll yeah, take our money in now. a regular segment. We would just take it as read that yes. you committed the crime. <laughs> right. uh, but in this one, we're trying to replicate. Uh, the, uh, things from fiction featuring sympathetic characters, I know, unusual for, for role-playing characters, uh, who have been, our heroes or hero has been framed for a crime and now you have to clear your name. Uh, how do we do that in role-playing? And I guess, Ken, the, the first obstacle is that, uh, although it might not actually remove the hero's agency, it might threaten to remove their agency and a lot of players, uh, uh, get uh, antsy about that, so uh, you have to do what the the, the first standard thing when you want to do this uh, time honored plotline is to come up with some mechanism that allows the characters who have been framed to investigate their own framing. Right. Uh, it's it's not uh, you're sort of cheating if it's just well the character the player whose char- uh, character is has been imprisoned for this murder that player happens to be off this week. Right. That doesn't really fully give you the whole... It doesn't uh, go into the meat of that genre of the innocent man wrongly condemned. And this is why this sort of thing works best in a sort of loosey-goosey, Trail of Cthulhu-y sort of, um, what do you want to call it, the backlot modern, where in the real world, if the cops legitimately thought 
that you had uh, committed a crime. Uh, they bring you in and they interrogate you. And depending on a variety of factors, they might just toss you in jail or um, uh, in other ways, in other ways, hamper your activities. Um, and even in the modern era, if you try and go around stumbling over the cops all the time, there will be legitimate blowback and that would frustrate and annoy the player characters. So what you want is the cops just to show up every now and again and say, we've got our eye on you, but never actually do anything about it because that's the, that's the sort of um, uh, wrong man accused model out of Hitchcock or out of whatever else. Uh, right. Sometimes they're, they're I chasing guess, you, but you manage to stay one step right. ahead. Of them, yeah. Sometimes, so. sometimes you have, actually have to escape from their surveillance or even from some sort of loose police custody. Like they've got a guard outside your house and that, and that kind of situation happens. But by and large, the, 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 the sort of uh, structure of this is the sort of, uh, imaginary hazy thirties, forties era in which the cops will go up and say, we've got our eye on you for this McLean. Don't leave town. And instead of leaving town, McLean goes and proves that in fact it was, um, uh, uh, the, uh, hideous necromancer who did all those murders or whatever it was. And, uh, that is the op, that's the sort of operative situation where the characters know they can't leave town, quote unquote, or else life does get hard for their character. That the point of the scenario is to stay in town and solve the crime, not to say, haha, I'm going to go over to the next barony over as you could in Dungeons and Dragons where, or any other F20 sort of fantasy world where the cops don't have the power to keep you and they don't have the manpower to uh, pursue you in the whole, uh, social setup doesn't really uh, play into that uh, format. So it really works best in, in the understood quasi-noir, quasi-private eye universe. Right. Because in addition to having uh, effective police who can uh, contain you, you also, for this to work, you need a justice system where evidence matters. Right. So <laughs> if, the, if the trial is like trial by combat or they float you to see if you drown or the king just decides whether he likes you or not, you're gathering evidence to prove that you're innocent. Or conversely, if the cleric of the God of justice just casts reveal truth on you and you're like, I was actually out uh, robbing the bank at the time of the murders and couldn't have done it. Then that's less fun because it short circuits the story. Right. So we're talking not only about constructing a forgiving, uh, and perhaps not strictly, uh, therefore realistic universe, uh, which means you have to convey that to the players, right? That you, uh, let them know that, uh, you know, even more so than usual, I think you have to let them know what subgenre they're in and that, uh, they can expect to make decisions the way a character in the contrived world of a, uh, a wrong man, Hitchcockian fleeing from the bad guys while, while, or, and the cops and finally figure out what's going on and redeeming yourself, uh, that that is the, the structure you're working within so that they don't just like, you know, turtle right i'm just gonna we're just gonna go to the cabin in the woods and hide right that's never what you want to uh, allow to happen in every genre and so you have to uh, make clear to them that hiding is not the solution and uh i think there are convoluted ways to do that in character or you can just say hey here's what we're doing so the next thing once you've established the forgiving universe is to uh, come up uh, with the crime that they might credibly be framed for and uh, uh, what uh, tips would you offer in that regard? You have to begin with a with a sort of an inciting direction for the story to take place. Uh, even more than most uh, sort of uh, mystery stories, the virtue here is speed. They have to keep moving. They have to move from scene to scene to scene, one step ahead of the cops, or before they got 24 hours before they're uh, taken away by the DA and in charge. The cops are going to hang it on somebody. Uh, someone made a cop talk spend, and so the cops are giving them 36 hours to prove their innocence. That kind of thing. There's a t- Checking clock, 
which means they have to have a direction. And so the direction is they have to have seen something or they have to know a witness who will have seen something so they can immediately move to that spot and then deal with that person. And now if that person has been killed informatively, then A, the cops show up and say, why you blaggard, I wouldn't have even dreamed you would have murdered the, the, the beautiful little match girl or whatever. And then you're like, no, no, the beautiful little match girl was murdered by someone else. And you run away uh, with the clues that you've gotten from the match girl's uh, murder scene and, and move you know, it's like gumshoe on uh, on fast forward because the whole point of the genre is you're you have to beat the deadline of either the cops catching you or the cops showing up and saying your 36 hours are up. Uh, now you're going to be tried, and even in an evidentiary universe, uh, you're probably going to be found guilty just because it's uh it, it's Chinatown. Right. It it also helps if you uh care about solving the crime other than just out of your self-interest of not being framed for it. So that, uh, and, and that often makes sense. You know, it's easy to dovetail because any crime that you could realistically be accused of committing is one that you uh, would have a stake in in some way. So, you know, your uh, mentor has been murdered or the, uh, the book that you needed in order to uh, uh, prevent the summoning ritual has been stolen or, uh, you know, that it is part of a grander plot. Uh, and so that this brings us to the question of, you know, who is framing you? That sometimes in these stories, it's just sort of a pure incident of chance. It's in North by Northwest. But in a uh, situation where you're an ongoing adventure hero, it's more likely that the villains need you out of the way and decide to sort of multitask. And, uh, you know, they need you out of commission and they want to kill your mentor or they need to steal the book or, or what have you so that you have... Uh, a second motivation to want to make, you know, not only clear yourself, but uh, end uh, their plot or get justice for the uh, the victim or, or what have you. So another uh, aspect to this, besides the sort of, you know, the, a lot of these are just standard gumshoe or mystery solving ideas, you know, have a clear path, give the characters a reason to care about the mystery, blah, blah, blah. So the other half of this has to be the cops, the looming figure of justice. And that can uh, ideally, I think, be presented as the good cop who they've befriended in their previous careers of arsons and justified homicide. And he knows that they're on the level and that they're uh, fighting the good fight against necromancers and squid monsters. And he says to them, he's the, the guy who gives them the information. The, you know, my partner really wants you for this. The DA really wants you for this. You've got 36 hours before they're going to be able to make a judge swear out warrants, um, whatever else. And th- provide the good cop, from the jump because players being players will fight the bad cop if they show up first. And then you can keep the pressure on depending on a, the temperament of your players at the table. Some of them are just cop fighters uh, and B the, the exigencies of the story. So depending on how many other murders or what other, other situation is going on, even a quasi realistic police response can act as a, as a story threat that, that moves the characters from point A to point B. I mean, again, if your character, if your players are the sort who will attempt to fight the police, maybe this is not even the genre you should be playing in, but, yes. uh, at the very least, you should be able to present the police as an ongoing, uh, threat that will move the players out of a place instead of tie them down to it because again the whole point is not to tie them down to a given place to have them constantly on the run with uh, without the ability to sort of stop and dither around that is so often the characteristic of these uh, adventures right and sometimes you can use the trope where it sort of doubles the good and bad cop figure in that the cop character is established as uh, honest 
and indefatigable uh, and believes that you did it at first. Uh, but uh, because they're actually honest and care uh, who did it rather than just trying to, uh, you know, toss the first person in the clink and go on to the next case, that you know that you can win them over so that uh, they become the figure once you gather the evidence, once you find the hidden log that reveals uh, whether, uh, you know, who was actually in the library that night or, you know, the, the document that uh, confirms uh, that you were actually uh, across town, you finally, you know, are able to prove your alibi or, you know, you perhaps have uh, shot down a uh, the, the weird uh, vegetable creature that uh, the uh, sorcerer has summoned and, and there you are uh, in the room with the uh, person who's made his convention. Whatever that is, whatever the big turning point is that conclusively proves that you didn't do it and you've uh, caught whoever it is who did, he's the person who you turn that information over. And I guess through that, I've backdoored into the other element you need, which is <laughs> even more so than a conventional mystery you need to be able to prove what has happened. Uh, and uh, that is often something that we don't bother with in uh, horror scenarios in which uh, often the convention is there is no proof and there is no evidence because that would require everybody to uh, then acknowledge that that vegetable people are vampires or, or whatever it is uh, exists. But here you need to have uh, some concrete the, a MacGuffin of information that you can turn over to the authorities where they all, they might not go ahead trying to prosecute the vegetable people because, you know, we're, you know, what kind of prison system do you put a vegetable person in? But, uh, they all go, well, okay, it's, we're going to have to cover this up, but it clearly wasn't you or we're taking this guy to jail and you can testify at their trial in a satisfying coda at the end. So given that that's a standard, I think that you could potentially play on it with uh F20 sort of fantasy world tropes. You could for example uh in in this one little uh, and the the great thing about F20 is you can have these little pocket baronies or kingdoms or even towns where the one druid or the one priest of Athena is, you know, got some powers that the rest of society doesn't. So in this one little uh town or a barony, the priestess of Athena has the ability to watch you and and and, and follow you around if you leave her kingdom. Or the police do uh, believe in evidence and law because they're governed by a, a philosopher sage or whatever else. And then you can play with the fantasy tropes in this uh, environment where uh, proving your innocence maybe is just actually about clearing a curse on you that some uh evil uh sorcerer put on you that your your geus is that your aura will always read as guilty under a, a truth spell or something like that and so clearing your name is not so much finding evidence that um uh, uh the blacksmith did it but but uh to fix the supernatural problem that you're put on that's sort of the subversion of this where um uh, Edmund O'Brien wakes up and he discovers he was poisoned he has 24 hours before the poison takes effect to to figure out who did it and then you um uh, instead of that it's like oh you have uh, th this curse on you that will uh, leave you framed for the murder yes. and so you have to break the curse so it's not really about solving the murder although that would be nice it's about breaking the curse and if you keep the core activity a fantasy sort of activity then you can maybe play with some of these tropes given uh, obviously players that are in the don't kill the sheriff and all of his men uh, headspace right the, the justice wraiths show up and they identify you as the source of the imbalance in the uh, uh, mystic subregion, and you're going to be uh, cast into the phantom zone. Uh, so get your fares in order in 24 hours, or uh, bring us the real source of the imbalance. We don't care. We're 
we're justice wraiths. We're, we're beyond all that. Mm-hmm. We, we look wraithy, but also oddly like Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not that odd when you know more wraiths. Yep. They don't. Care. The, the, the wraiths that don't look like Tommy Lee Jones are the weird ones. It's like yeah. the Twilight Zone. Uh, well, uh, I think we're heading into the wraith hut at this point. And, and to avoid us both being cast in the Phantom Zone, we better move through this commercial to whatever segment lies on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The rattle of chains, the groaning of the tropes in the cinematic bookshelf and or DVD rack tell us that we're once more in the spookiest of huts, and that, of course, would be the horror hut. This time around, I thought we would talk about a, a very particular uh, subgenre or even sub-subgenre. It's, it's very specific, and that is the uh, genre of wax museum horror. And I uh, jotted down on our list a couple of things that, the, uh, that I could uh, think of after having watched the 1933 Mystery of the Wax Museum, directed by Michael Curtiz with Lionel Atwell and Fay Ray. And, uh, Ken, you've come up with a whole bunch more. This could even be it a, is a... It is a deep, deep genre, not all of which I have seen necessarily, but some of them I've seen, besides uh, the classics that uh, I guess everyone has seen, which would be... I don't know if everyone has seen the Curtiz Mystery of the Wax Museum. I saw it on TV when I was like a kid on the Monster Chiller Horror Theater on Channel 43 or uh, whichever one it was, and they showed all the... Anything that could uh, conceivably have been a horror movie... In between re-showing Dracula, they would show these, and so I right. saw that then. And you must have seen a really terrible print of it on oh, television at that time. I'm sure I did. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's since been restored because, uh, interestingly, there's sort of a, a sub-thread here in movie history of wax museum movies and technical innovations because this was an early Technicolor film, uh, and it's two-strip Technicolor, so that was uh, really good at sort of greenish blue and brown. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, it's uh, Curtiz, and so it, it uh, rattles along and has a great sort of effective pace and, and momentum. Uh, but I guess the question, to, just to back up a step, is that clearly uh, wax works or wax museums 
became terrifying uh, one minute after someone decided to do something like that. Yeah. Uh, which would have been in the, in the Baroque era, uh, where initially, uh, uh, posed wax figures were made and there's, a uh, one particular guy who did the moving wax works of the Royal Court of England, which had 140 life-size figures with, uh, clockwork moving parts in, uh, uh, 1711. It was in Fleet Street in London. So, and I, uh, and that, um, that might have been more like the Hall of Presidents to, to the people at the time. I mean, I don't right. think that they were saying, imagine how creepy Queen Anne is, or I don't think they said it twice. No. Um, I, I think that this was much more of a, you know, look, it is Lord Buckingham and he will greet you at the door. And oh, you can pretend that you're sort of, or maybe even not even a Hall of Presidents, but like you're pretending that you get to be at a royal soiree. And it's, this is what it would be like if you were here right. with, with these lovely, uh, uh, royal people who would yeah, kick so it you in the face. wasn't intended to be creepy. Right. There are parts of wax museums that are, you know, the chamber of horrors right. subset yes. is meant to be creepy. And the, but and of the, course, the, the guy who made the, the, uh, the first big French wax museum, I think began with a, you know, a similar mo- motive and then rapidly added the creepy wing, uh, the, the cave of the great thieves, right. uh, <laughs> which is your, your tip off that this is not going to be, um, uh, a, a fun, uh, animatronic thrill ride. Right. And, and the reason you do that is that after you build your, uh, what is supposed to be your extremely attractive image of, uh, you know, King Louis the 14th and take a look at him and move around and go, uh, he's kind of creepy yeah. <laughs> because it's the uncanny valley, right? It's right. The, the more realistic a non-human thing becomes, the uh, more obvious it is that the thing is not actually human. And, uh, uh, and then uh, what, of course, uh, mystery of the wax museum and many, and many of its precursors do is it takes the obvious horror step of, what if they're not entirely made of wax? What if they're people who've been encased in wax? And, and that gives you or what if they genre. can come alive through some sort of hideous magic, right? Blood sacrifice, Robin. Yes. Uh, is there a, uh, a literary tradition of wax museum horror or is that so inherently a visual medium that it really is a film thing? I mean, obviously Lovecraft's story, uh, the horror in the museum is the one that I think if anyone has read one wax museum story, that's the one they've read. I wonder if there have been other ones before Lovecraft or if Lovecraft again accidentally created a genre. That's in 1933 that that gets published. I'm imagining that since Madame Tussaud was a going concern by then for about a hundred years, someone must have written wax museum horror fiction before Lovecraft. Right. And, and they might have been French, which is why they're not coming to mind. Yeah. That could very well be. And there's, you know what? I'll bet if, uh, if, if you dug around, there's a, a Martin Greenberg anthology of wax museum horror stories somewhere, <laughs> um, uh, that, that would tell you all about it. But we have not done said digging because, uh, Robin and I are filmic people. That's our way. Uh, anyway, though, so the, the Madame Tussaud, uh, uh, moves from Paris to, um, uh, to London, uh, possibly because her name is Madame, not, uh, uh, a good commoner Tussaud. Uh, she was, uh, connected with making, uh, masks, uh, for the royal court. She, she was the protege of the guy who founded the, the Cave of Thieves, uh, wax museum. And she made wax, uh, images of all the dead royals, but I guess that probably wasn't enough. So she scampered off. 
to London, established her first museum there. And uh, that is where the almost inextricable connection of wax museums and uh, London, which in, includes Lovecraft story and most of these movies um, uh, takes place, that that's where Madame Stode really grinds it down and becomes part of a Victorian panoply of things less common than Jack the Ripper, more common than Spring Hill Jack hideous evil wax museum is right in there somewhere. Right. And, uh, wax museums still exist. Uh, there are, uh, Madame Tussauds in various tourist trap locations around the world, but it increasingly, uh, as, uh, entertainment technology evolves, seems a, a stranger and stranger thing to, uh, want to pay money to, to check out. And so that gives all of these things sort of an old timey feel that I think is part of the kind of Gothic appeal. So that even though mystery of the wax museum, is set in the 30s, right? And it's very clearly in the Warner Brothers 30s, not in right. the uh, backlot gothic uh, of the Universals, but it's like got wisecracking reporters and cops and there's nothing overtly supernatural going on. So that is remade in 53 and that gives us another technical innovation because that was directed by Andrew DeToth and that is uh, a 3D film and one of the first uh, 3D movies and, and made a ton of uh, of money in its day. Are there other things that you would point to as particularly great versions of of this? There was a an, an actual literal remake of that in 05 and I'm assuming that like me you haven't seen that one. No, That's I did. One. I saw that one. Oh. Uh a because the, it was part of that era when they were remaking all those classics and they made um uh House on Haunted Hill and they remade uh, another couple of those films 13 Ghosts and that studio was always doing something really clever, even though the movies themselves were sort of not great. So, uh, also, the fact that Elisha Cuthbert is in it may or may not have had some effect on my decision to see it. But, uh, the House of Wax movie is a standardy sort of slasher film. It's not really a House of Wax movie, but the visuals are crazy and bananas. And whoever sort of did the production design and, uh, and, and set that film up, it's a gorgeous looking monstrosity of, of a movie. And, and so I, I recommend it if you you know see it on streaming and you are already baked, I think it would be a great movie to watch. Um, but it actually remakes a different wax museum movie. As I learned uh, during the, doing the research for this called the tourist trap, which is a immediate post Halloween slasher uh, starring Charles Bronson and Tanya Roberts, two names that you would not necessarily hear in connection with anything, much less a wax museum movie. But there you are. That's what it's from. And that is apparently the movie they actually remade and just called it House of Wax in order to get the cred uh, and to be part of that sort of thematic remake of uh, of B-horror classics that was going on at the same time. Now, you've got other things on the list, and uh, you've got a, a Giallo, for example, mm-hmm. that's uh, the, the Wax Mask from uh, 97. Yeah, it was an attempt to make a, a movie for Lucio Fulci, but Fulci's health was so bad that they wound up uh, letting someone else direct it. Fulci co-wrote it with Dario Argento, uh, and it's basically a story about a horrible murder mask uh, thing. It's set in Rome in 1912, I think, and it's a giallo that takes place there, um, and it's just a mysterious killer is making ma- wax models of his victims type story. Um, it's uh, it's got a it, it's supposed to be sort of connected to the original House of Wax, uh, sort of a remake, and then of course Fulci Argento and 90s version of giallo, which is kind of weak, quite frankly. Uh, <laughs> do what they do. To, to film, they melt it as though it were a wax figure, uh, but it's um, uh, it's all right. It's just not a great movie, and you know, perhaps not the way you want to remember 
Fulci going out, I think. And you uh, list here a classic Twilight Zone episode, the new exhibit. Yes, that, of course, is is one that everyone who's seen the Twilight Zone uh, knows, which is the one where Martin Balsam has um, uh, created a, a new horror exhibit in uh, the... Uh, in in the wax museum, and of course the thing is probably a serial killer or a monster. We don't know. Da, da, da. Um, but it's a it, it's a good one. It, it's the trouble is that it's one of the ones where they were doing the hour long episodes, so it's uh so it's super padded is the problem there. But it's but it's nice because you've got uh, creepy wax uh, dummies that are maybe recapitulating their their uh, their actions. We don't know. So if we're creating a, a scenario around the this uh, trope. Uh, we know that, first of all, if you want to hit people with a switcheroo, uh, their first assumption is going to be that uh, people are being murdered and turned into uh, wax figures. Uh, the second most obvious thing uh, is that uh, they, uh, the wax figures are, are somehow going to become magically animated. Uh, and then, of course, you, you've already listed, oh, well, it's just there's a murderer and it's a wax museum, which right. is, I think, something that works on film because of the visuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, see previous discussion of wax figures being creepy. Yeah. But I think it would be uh, kind of flat in a role-playing context. In a role-playing context, you'd want to do something like the movie that I have not seen, or maybe you would want to, uh, that I've not seen, but I, I like the description. It's called Waxwork. It's from 1988. And it's a horror comedy in which going into the little area sends you into the land that the wax figure guards. So when you got a wax Dracula and you go after him, you're in a magical Transylvania. You're not in the wax museum anymore. And so the wax museum as a sort of a dungeon is maybe an interesting concept to play with. Again, assuming you can't just, I set it on fire. It's wax. It melts next challenge. You have to have something better than just, you know, actual wax work fighting you. It has to at least be a magically animated, like a mummy type thing. Right. So that's sort of the hall of Gumby. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, other things could be that the, that the wax museum is being used in, in some other sort of, uh, uh, way. Perhaps there's, uh, you know, aliens trying to learn about humans by, uh, they set up a wax museum and they're, they're studying them. And there's, uh, I think it would still be disappointing, I guess, if the, uh, if the wax figures don't come to life, I think probably your players want to fight animated wax figures at some point. Um, so you can't, rule that out as something that's been done too often because for one thing it hasn't really i think maybe one thing you could do is the wax figure as uh the voodoo doll as the as the poppet right so someone has made a wax figure and they're like oh no this is charles Lindbergh, but there's another uh uh, uh isolationist pilot who's in the in, in your campaign city and uh he's suddenly doing things that are benefiting the wax museum guy and it's like oh are the is he controlling him with it and so you can't fight the mummy and destroy it because you'd kill the innocent pilot uh, and you could find that out one way or the other or the guy could make a wax museum of a of a beautiful woman who commits suicide and then a woman who coincidentally rejected the wax museum operator hangs herself just like the dummy did and then that's what maybe triggers the player's interest in this situation but they know that if they fight the the dummies they'll kill the innocent people that they're uh, modeled after and that gives you a, a, a connection it could also be that the wax figures are, are treasure that they uh, are, in fact, somehow they allow you to communicate with those historical figures, uh, either because they, you know, there is a scrap of bone in them or just because of, you know, the magic resemblance or, or what have you. And that, uh, you know, your H.P. Uh, Lovecraft figure that uh, you've borrowed from Guillermo del Toro's house, uh, you know, if you perform the right ritual on the right night, you can ask him a few questions. And so uh, you can have that as sort of uh, a way of 
of communing with all of these uh, these figures without uh, you know having to conjure them up from their uh, essential salts. I see that as sort of a of an NPC uh, uh, character. He's in your in your game, and he runs the wax museum. And you know that it's creepy and, and awful, and maybe people disappear there, but you haven't really looked into it because he's already been or always done right by you. But yeah, you're like, oh wow, we really need to talk to this um uh, to um uh, I, I don't know to um uh, Landru the French Strangler. Oh, there's an exhibit of Landru in his Hall of Murderers. I'll bet. Oh goodness, well, I'll bet we can talk to him if we uh, cross his palm with silver. And so you have to deal with that guy, and he has just uh, all manner of of weird little wax figures in his museum. And who would pay to see a a wax figure of the Count de Saint Germain? But there you are, and now you can talk to him about alchemy or whatever, right? For the right price. But if, yes, for the right price, there's always a price. And uh, if you want to have a a campaign. Uh, that is based around your owning a wax museum. Apparently, you've discovered a prototype for that in the form of a 1966 TV pilot called Chamber of Horrors. <laughs> yes, it was. What? Yes. Again, I have not seen this particular beautiful thing, but in 1966, people were looking for serial uh, TV, uh, uh, sort of uh, quasi-supernatural or exciting uh, crime fighting, and that's where you get Mission Impossible comes out of that, uh, Man from Uncle, all those spy movies, spy shows, but also people were trying to do that to the detective genre to add something that would make it sexy and different from all the TV cops. Uh, so there was a, uh, a movie called, um, uh, Dark Intruder that was supposed to be a, a Leslie Nielsen series where he would fight the occult, and there was this, uh, which was originally going to be a TV show called House of Wax, again, playing off the, uh, great imagined love there was for that Vincent Price movie, but in Instead of being about a serial killer, it's about heroic wax museum operators who uh, fight crime and fight a weirdness. In this case, they fight a, uh, in fact, they fight a serial killer. But the notion that somehow. What is episode two of episode two? <laughs> this gets picked up. What the heck do you have them do? It's such a baffling, you know, how, how do their wax museum ownership skills allow them <laughs> play to fight crime? It. Yeah, it, and so anyway, it uh, for some bizarre reason did not get picked up. <laughs> the, the press, the, yeah, I imagine the network asked the question that I just asked. Yeah, and um, so then they turned it into a movie by adding uh, the fear flasher and the horror horn, which would let you know when something really scary was going to happen. Ah, uh, they they took uh, something out of the William Castle playbook. Exactly. Uh, so the um, uh, so it, it became a um, a, a, a movie that. Uh, perhaps predictably, did not do very well at the box office and vanished into the mists of IMDb. Yes. They, they, they had, they, they had the, the premise horn when you question what they're going right. to do. Exactly. Why, why exactly are you the, um, uh, are you, are you investigating murders? I think the premise horn is also suggesting we should move along to yeah. our next segment. <laughs> this is not the baffled at weird decisions in the mid sixties hut, which is a big, exciting hut, that, but that's not many, many huts. Right. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? 
Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your Steve Mugger. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Protect this podcast from melting alongside such Patreon backers as... Ryan Lassiter. Chris McLaren. Rich Spainauer. Aaron Sapp. And Anton Kulikov. Hey everybody, uh, welcome to yet another segment of uh, Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else. And once again, we're rocketing back in time to the uh, day before Gen Con when we're uh, stacking up a pile of awesome interviews. And uh, this moment's awesome interviewee is Matt Colville of Woo! Matt Colville fame uh, or of his YouTube channel uh, Running the Game. So, uh, Matt, it's, uh, we met a long time ago, we're re-meeting now, but it feels like we are kindred spirits, because it seems to me that what you've done with your YouTube channel is you looked at what other people were doing, uh, just like I looked at what other people were doing with the role-playing podcast, and you decided to do, let's do the good, tight version of that. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, that's one way of saying Sure, yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll cop to that. Yeah, I, I just started by being frustrated that I would run games for my friends in video games. And without exception, like we're talking 30 to 50 people over 15 years, none of them would then go on to want to run a game. And that was super weird to me. And so I thought, okay, well, I need to do something about this. I need to tell them that, like, it's actually easy and fun. It's not, it's not overwhelming. It's not a lot of work. And so that was the channel was, hey, I want more, I want more Dungeon Masters. Right. And it turns out that there's a big audience for people who want to be talked into the fact that they can do what they can absolutely do if they just go ahead and do it. Yeah, just enable people and say, it's not scary. Give it's them not permission. Rolling. Yeah, that's a lot of, actually, yeah, a lot of what I do is not only give them permission to run, but also give them permission to run however they want. Yeah. You know, and that if what they, what has inspired them is a heavily narrative show, you can do that. If what's inspired them is old school dungeon crawling, you can do that. All that stuff, any way anyone has ever had fun with it is still fun now. Yeah. Right? It's just like maybe fun not fashion. Like, you know, stop being fun. Exactly, yeah. It was just, but there are, as you guys know, there are fashions at any time. It, what's, what's you know, th- certain styles of player are always looked down on depending on where you are in the era. And my attitude is like, yeah, that's true, but at home with your friends, just do what you want. And so that's the thesis statement of the channel is that it's fun. However you want to do it is going to be fun. You're going to be great. Don't worry about it. Uh, so there's an evergreen need for GM advice. Uh, um, one of my things I always say is that any panel Q&A session, whatever the actual topic of the panel is, halfway through will turn into GM advice requests. Sure. 
Yeah. Um, and there's all sorts of books about jamming and over the years. Uh, and so there's a an insatiable need for this still, obviously. Um, do you have a sense of who is coming to you? Are they long-time players who are finally taking the plunge? Are they part of the new generation who are finding role-playing through uh, YouTube and other video channels? I'd say there are two main audiences, and that is nerds on YouTube, right, who are just looking for more nerd content, and then they discover it and they're happy to find it. And maybe they're not even really interested in Dungeons & Dragons, or maybe they've been running for years. And so that's a that's a percentage. That's a big chunk of my audience. And then the rest are people who have found it primarily as a result of this new upsurge in interest because it just stuck around long enough to become respectable. Right? right. Like it is this thing that's been around long enough that it's in Stranger Things a lot. It's mm-hmm. featured, and Stranger Things does a really good job of showing people how it is a thing you do with your friends and is a lot of fun and is creative. And, and also and, kind of inspires the way you look at the world yeah, afterward, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it, it gives you like it gives you a framework for storytelling, it gives you a framework for problem solving, right? It gives you a framework for relating to people, right? You and your friends are gonna get together and maybe you weren't really good friends. Right. Maybe right. these were just kids you were at school with and you're like, Oh hell, they'll do. Mm-hmm. Right. But now you're gonna do this thing together and you're gonna pretend to be heroes. And right. Stuff. And refreshingly, unlike uh, almost all other depictions. Uh, it actually shows what an actual game session yeah. is like. Now, yeah, yeah. There's now, nobody wearing a. Coat. Now I should warn our audience at home that Matt is a cinephile and a film critic uh, as well by by uh, blood, by avocation. So there is every danger that this little segment about Matt's terrific streaming career huh. will suddenly turn into caught here to cinema. <laughs> so if that happens, suck it up. I just think I think of myself more as like a movie nerd, right? Than, I, than anything else. I don't, yeah. Uh, also, I, I think that, and I've said this before, and it's weird to put people who I also consider my friends on the spot, but I think that we're going to break down the history of this category into before critical role and after critical role. I mean, it, it's absolutely the um, uh, the intolerance to continue the film metaphor of, yeah, of the sure. of the medium, right? It's yeah. the thing that. Before it, everything was sort of like, oh, I'm going to stand in their living room, just fuck around. And then after it, it's like, holy crap, you can do that. Yeah, like, yeah, it's 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 someone coming along and, and and showing you how it's done, and that is incredibly useful for two reasons. One, because um, if you are someone who is new to this thing and you're interested in it, but you don't really know how to go about it, there is a world class version of it happening every Thursday night. Right, and they may make it seem intimidating, but they definitely make it seem fun, and they make it seem like the sky's the limit. Like the kind of narrative that happens in Critical Role has a lot of pathos and ethos, and it's got people falling in love, and it's got betrayals. It's not just dungeon crawling. There's actually, I think, very little dungeon crawling. Some some episodes, there's barely any gaming. That's true. Well, that's that's true. Like they might like they they, they may they may just negotiate or go shopping for much, you know much like our own home games. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and that's and that's an important lesson too. So there's people who are coming to it who don't know what it is and they watch this and they go oh now I actually that's not a this isn't something people are putting on this is a real game people are running for real but then also it's a huge I don't think you can underestimate the utility value of critical role in letting nerds show their friends and relatives but this is it this is that thing I've been talking about for the last nine months or the last 20 years you've never really got and what I've seen a lot of is people who will watch Critical Role and then they can get their parents to play 
And that was never possible really? before. Yeah, that was never possible before. They'll just go, here, just go watch this. Because you don't have to watch four hours of Critical Role. You can watch 15 minutes of it, and you go, ah, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. That's yeah. fun. I want to do that. That's a lot more straightforward and fun. And they just seem like a bunch of friends hanging out playing games. And it's like, yeah, that's it. So I think that's the, that's the utility value there is not only is it a great example, it also lets people communicate about the game to other people by showing it off and saying, here, this is what it is. So in, in the, I mean, certainly if Critical Role is uh, the intolerance, I think that you are, I don't know, the Nosferatu, you're something. <laughs> you are a thing, right? You are, uh, uh, your your channel has got, what is, like, by now six digits? We've got, we're, people, oh, we hit 200,000 200, subscribers, right? uh, like, last month of the month. And, and Which implies that there's 200,000 role players. Right, right? And, and fairly intensely hardcore ones, because right. they're watching a DMing advice channel. Yeah, and my, my uh, I, I break a lot of YouTube rules. Like, right, YouTube yeah. will tell you not to make a video that's more than about 12 minutes long. But a lot of my videos are half an hour, 45 yeah. minutes. and But they're not like these sort of four-hour, uh, I don't no, know, yeah, I, try to, uh, I, try I had to, beans type videos. Yeah, well, I was lucky because I came to it. I'm not somebody, I, I'm, I'm new to YouTube, but I'm not u- new to either being a, a dungeon master or a game designer. And so for me, it's me able to synthesize 30 years of what I've been doing. Right. And then just trying to, I spent a lot of time actually watching, um, when we released Evolve, which was the last big video game I worked on, I spent a lot of time watching streamers and people who were playing the game I worked on and then communicating to an audience about it. And that helped me learn and understand what do people find valuable and how to just to cut to that. Exactly. So that's the idea is let's just, you know, we're just going to try and give you the, if you watch just the first five videos, because there's 60 of them now, but if you just watch those first five videos, you will go and you will run D&D and you're on the way. And that's right. It. And that's, and that's uh, but that's not nothing. And you present that uh, super accessibly. Obviously, I mean, I've been a fan of listening to Matt Colville talk way back when it was, you know, you and me and Ross and Christian at the last unicorn. But people are are coming to you for that. You've done your own streaming stuff before. We're going to do even more. And you're going to do even more, of course, now that you've made $8 zillion for the streaming network uh, on the Kickstarter uh, for Strongholds. And strongholds and followers. Strongholds and followers. Kind of again. The, I'm a backer, but I don't remember that. Are you a backer? Oh, yeah, you don't. That's that. Thank you, Ken. Yeah. I could. I would. You wouldn't have to do that. I, could I know that. Send you all the stuff. Uh, uh, who, who needs who needs nine dollars from me? Matt. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll put it to good use. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're getting ready to stream our game. And I, I will generally back mostly because I just wanted to read the updates. Oh really? It was like my my old uh, uh, nascent journalistic instincts were like, oh. "This is big. This is a well, thing that is going to be big. I should know about it before, so that I that's can good to know because show off." You telling me something like that means that's going to probably color the kind of updates I write because yeah. we want to be very transparent and talk about the process. And we haven't even yet, just because we've been too busy, we haven't even yet done our big postmortem. Right. And we, we, we just we probably won't until after the product ships. I mean, the PDF, the right, PDF yeah. ships, just because I won't have the time. But that'll be a good coincidence. It's like, okay, here's the product. Now let me tell you about how this Kickstarter went and what we learned and what we did wrong. Right. But again, you, I mean, you talk about not wanting to put your friends on the spot and say that they're epical figures. And maybe you're not an epical figure. But you and I, basically of a generation, yeah, maybe you're a yeah. little younger than me in terms of game design years on yeah. the on the log. Sure, absolutely. But to see my buddy Matt Colville suddenly be... The Matt Colville. Well, that had to be really weird. And that, that was kind of a thing. I, and that, I, I'm curious about how that happened. When I when I look at your streaming success, and you're like, "Well, I'm going to launch this Kickstarter, and my updates are going to talk about our process." I'm like, "Great! I've yeah. got a guy that I literally know. I, I don't know how you think Qua, but I know pretty well how you think. Yeah. This is how he's building this hugely influential, important career." Um, I'm obviously, uh, no one in the world wants to look at my head, but. Uh, 
but I, I think that everyone who's working in this industry can sort of look at uh, a path like yours and say, what's the need that Matt is filling? What's the audience he's reaching? Why do people like hearing this guy talk about dice? Uh, what's what's, what's going on? Exactly. Dozens of other people do it. And that sort of inside look from a voice I know well and trust to not be an idiot or a blowhard is it's valuable. That was worth my nine well, bucks I, or whatever it, it was. As, as research, I, I watched an episode. Of course, I picked the one where you would either mention me or be wrong. Yeah. Oh, I did. I mean, so, I think so I congratulations. Right. You were right. Well, and how wrong was I? You were totally right. Well, you mentioned oh, okay. me. There you go. You were right. Um, and so uh, it seems to me that what the, the thing that you're doing, uh, you're not just... You don't just have energy, which of course is a YouTube dude thing, but you are tight. That you are obviously the, uh, it's monologue style, um, but you're, there's cuts even though it's a single camera thing. And presumably you are doing, redoing lines when you need to redo them so that there's no muffs or no pauses or fumbling around. So it is, uh, uh, very direct and maintains that energy. And even though it's 20 minutes, it's a, it's a tight 20. That's delivering the information for people who obviously want to get it on YouTube in the tightest possible way. What what other advice would you give to people who uh, you know want to try and exist in your shadow? And, oh, I think because um, I've seen people who try to I don't want to say like replicate what I've done, but because I've done it. They they thought oh I can do that yeah. and you can absolutely like uh, I'm a guy I'm a yeah, face. exactly yeah. exactly exactly and, uh, and there was two like there's a there's a piece of advice that I heard a million times which was don't worry about your production focus on your content and I think that's bullshit I think that like do, whatever your budget is spend it to make your stuff look and sound good because that's gonna be that's gonna remove so much friction right but then the other thing is just go watch a lot of YouTubers don't try to get into this because like it's it's been years since I've watched television. Like, almost at all. Like, I go home at the end of the day, and I put on YouTube, and I watch YouTube, and that's been true for years. And so... Well, there's not much on now. <laughs> Television's a pretty dead medium. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, if you, I, I, if you, if you're talking about... I mean, there's a the good broad, place, and that's it, right? If you're talking about <laughs> broadcast TV, I would largely agree with you. Um, but so I would, I, I felt like, okay, I had a whole bunch of heroes in the YouTube space that I looked up to, and people who were making content that I thought, wow, I think I can do that. And so I just made it a point to try to figure out how do they do it? Like, what, not just what gear do they use, but how do they edit, and when do they edit, and how long do they, how long is a video, and what type of content, and how often do they upload? And so I think that's, if it, you can't fake it. You've gotta, you can't just decide, I want the reward. Therefore, I'm going to superficially simulate what Much happened. like the rest of life. Yeah, well, it's funny because it's much like every company that tried to make a World of Warcraft killer. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, you could maybe do it, but you, but there's, there's spent, something in that space. They spent 10 years working on that game before they released it. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember being at a party when a friend of mine told me about it, and it was years later before it came out. I'm like, you can't get to the end unless you do at least, at least the work that they did. And right. Yeah. probably something else. So yeah, are so you are you working from a script? Are you uh, r- writing on the fly and then refining and editing? I think about a third of my videos have a script. It depends on the subject. It depends on sometimes I'll I'll, I'll start making notes and I'll feel like I, there's something very particular I want to say, and as a result, I'm like, oh, I just got to write this as a script. And so I have like a thirty dollar. Um, teleprompter, which is literally just a piece of plastic that sticks on the end of your camera and has another transparent piece of plastic at a 45 degree angle. And you put your phone on it and you get a little Bluetooth, uh, $30 Bluetooth remote. And now the text that's on my phone 
show, and I, and I'm like, oh, this is great. And it's a very low rent solution, but that lets me, and you, I think, I think anybody who tried could tell the difference between the, um, the scripted ones and the unscripted ones. I mean, ones. I, I, I don't know if it was that I'm trying, but I know you well enough to sort of catch the difference in the cadence. Oh, yeah. And it's not like you're stilted and artificial. It's just a different way that you present when yeah. you're doing the script. And also, like, it, I, I think that, I, you know, I think there's a, lo- a long way to go just for this YouTube channel because I don't have an editor, I don't have any production facility, except now I have the wherewithal to actually produce these videos the way some of my heroes do. Right. Uh, and the way up until now I've been faking it. And so the videos I do that aren't scripted I think are incredibly repetitive. I will say the same phrase over and over again, trying to hit a certain... T- and then in editing I'll be like, oh, crap. Each one of these iterations said something different, unique that I like, and I feel like I have to leave them all in. And I watch the video back, and I'm like, if I were a better YouTuber, I would only have to say that once, and this video would be 15 minutes long instead of 25. And so I think there's a long way for me to go. I think I'm still basically an amateur. Um, and So that's something I'm looking forward to, is putting more production into the videos and making them more polished and making them... Because they don't have to be as long as they are. In terms of uh, content, yeah. is there areas of... I mean, you've done... Uh, S. John Ross famously compared GMing advice to cookie recipes. That sure, we yeah. have all the cookie recipes we ever need, yeah. but there will always be infinite more cookie recipes in every issue of a magazine. Yeah. Is there? Are you basically going to keep going back and saying uh, splitting the party can be fun, or uh, don't touch my dice, or the same well, sorts of advice, or is there areas of the gaming experience and the hobby and the, even just the straight up tabletop dice on the graph paper that you think? Well, now that I'm here. I can maybe uh, tell people about this technique or this way of, or this part of the of the hobby that maybe people didn't know about. Is there more to explore, or are you going to be just make, building your current castle much higher? I think um, that's a good question. There are first of all, when you look at the number of subscribers any given channel has, that's a pretty mm-hmm. meaningless number, right? Because YouTube doesn't have any. Although they do kind of fake it every once in a while, YouTube does not work to. YouTube doesn't bug you and say, hey, you haven't watched any of this guy's videos for a while. Right. Do you still know he exists? So if you subscribe, you tend to just stay subscribed forever. Mm-hmm. A much better metric is to go look and see how many views a given video gets. Right. And most of my videos get around 60,000 views. So there's about 60,000 people that are actively engaged with the content. But that's the different 60,000 that were watching right. a year ago. Yeah. Right? So there's a percentage in taking a video I made a year ago and just doing it again. Because, A, I think different things about it now. Mm-hmm. And I'll make a better video this time. And that audience, many of them have not seen. Return the to the cleric. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So when you see other YouTube channels do this, well, they'll go and they'll go back to. I have an advantage that a lot of really popular YouTube channels don't have, which is that, as you guys know, like, DM advice is evergreen. Like, I'm not a tech reviewer. Most of the biggest YouTubers are tech reviewers for right. obvious reasons. And... I don't have to worry about this phone being obsolete, yeah. you know, in six months. You're not reviewing the Samsung 8. No, exactly, exactly. I, I, I'm, I'm reviewing, and in fact, that's one of the reasons I stay away from being, and this kind of, I think, frustrates some of my viewers, is that I frustrate, I, I stay away from giving explicit 5th edition advice, right. about, like math and stuff like that, because I want the content to be evergreen. But I also think that, like, um, I haven't run D&D in, like, the last year because of this project. Mm-hmm. Right, and because of you know, I was doing it because of the critical role comic, because of my former day job, and so we're looking forward to getting started again in the next, I would say, six weeks. And my experience is that every time I run, I think of stuff that are let new lessons. Right. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's one of those things where it doesn't matter how long I do this. I assume I will always be learning new things, and that will give me something interesting to talk about. The, the problem is that uh, my channel has like, and this is true of a couple other channels I've seen. Um, a good YouTube channel is super focused. 
my channel has a lot like here's my advice on how to run D&D and now you can actually watch four hours of my friends and I playing and now you can watch half an hour of me talking about how that went those are three different products yeah. they would be in three different aisles if they were at Target and some people only want to go down to that one aisle and it's mm -hmm. really frustrating for me because I'm like but seriously some of my best advice is in this postmortem, right? But it's 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 also me telling the story. And, and then there's also the channels of you saying, "Here's why the Indiana Jones movies work." Yeah, yeah, I do every once in a while. Yeah, right. exactly. Every, every once in a while, else, right? I'll say, "Hey, let's talk about 2001." I wrote a whole script for Shape of Water, which I really liked, and I thought well, there was more going on there than most people noticed. And I just didn't have time. It's still sitting there. I just right. didn't have time to to, to record it. Right. Yeah, so uh, that's still something I would like to do. And so far, the I think uh, the secret of any popular. YouTube channel, especially like I think this is true of most modern content creators, but anything where it's your face on screen, people they just want to hang out. Yeah, like you can sort of talk about whatever. They want to kind of know about you. Yeah, you can and, and whatever, and they will consider anything that you want to talk about as time well spent. So so far, they've been pretty. My audience has been pretty generous regarding my trips down other subjects. Uh, so Matt, from feedback that you're getting from people, do you get the sense that the new generation of people coming in through Critical Role and other new places need different advice, or do they need the classic advice? It's interesting because I definitely feel as though, and I've talked about this on Twitter, and I'm going to do a video about this, um, There's uh, I, I, all the advice that's ever been true is still useful, I think. And so that's why I do stuff like I name check you and say the stuff Robin Laws was talking about 20 years ago is still true now. But I do think that there's a danger uh, that if you are not a straight white dude, you're going to land on one of these pages and you're going to go, oh, they're, look, that's going to send a message because all the suggested videos are all going to be this one very narrow demographic. And so something I'd like to see is... Some of us are a little whiter than others. That's true. Uh, yeah, that's, 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 true. that's true. But there, the good news is if you go to... This is strictly in terms of uh, GM advice. If you go and watch people streaming online, they come in all shapes and colors, and it's fantastic. The people playing games live online is its own ecology, and that's fantastic. So I do, I do think that, like, if you're someone who is... You watch Stranger Things, and you're like, I could do that... I think there's still a lot left to be done and a lot more room to be explored saying it's not just a bunch of straight white dudes. Anybody can do this. It can be fun for anybody. Um, so obviously the number one place to find you is uh, on YouTube. So just go to YouTube and search Matt Colville. Uh, do you have an, uh, other social media presence? People, I'm big on Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time, um, at Matt Colville. I'm on Reddit. I have my own subreddit, slash r slash Matt Colville, which I tune into every once in a while. But it's pretty well regulated by the users. If people have questions, like, I, I, you know, it's, uh, these things exist because... Is, is people, that a non-toxic part of Reddit? Yeah, yeah. My, yeah I, it so says far, Matt Colville right on the name. It's so far... That depends, means yeah. it's pure and beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good as far as... Um, if people have questions about the game, they could get supportive answers. If they create content and they want people to look at it and give them advice, they can get it. And I have a pretty zero tolerance policy when it comes to people, people, yeah, people being jerks and stuff like that. But, you know, generally speaking, because it's Reddit, I don't have to do anything. People who are being jerks just get downloaded into oblivion and you don't even see their comments. So, slash r slash Matt Colville or at Matt Colville on Twitter. Groovy. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time to stop by. Thanks for having me by. Great to see you again, man. It was great seeing you.
Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time once more to clamber up the creakety cobweb stairs where we wave hello to the portrait of Madame Blavatsky. She continues to glower at us and we sweep on in to the Edwardian parlor where is waiting for us our regular occultist because uh, we're going to take a pause on the uh, Occultists of the Pelopoc series because uh, the uh, Yellow King role-playing game uh, is... Uh, we had to switch printers at the last minute and things are coming out a little while later than I had originally thought they would. So uh, we're going to uh, resume that to time it uh, closer to the books uh, actually shipping in their beautiful uh, book form. Uh, so that gives us a chance to go back and explore some other topics. And this is one of those ones where... Whether it's a consulting occultist or a Liptony hut, uh, kind of depends on your definitions. Are ghosts, uh, a Liptony or the occult? Well, in this case, I think if they're, uh, ghosts from, uh, the 1700s, they're still consulting occultist ghosts. Right. And not least because there was an actual occult investigation. Someone did consult an occultist the, or an occultist. And that, technically. Yes. And, th- and that occultist was Dr. Samuel Johnson. That's so, right. What? Uh, Whoop, what? Record scratch. So, Yes, the premise horn is going off again, but this really happened. And this is a, a super uh, complicated story. I originally found it as a little anecdote in a, a book about something else. And uh, once I began to delve into it, uh, there's a lot going on here. There's uh, uh, psychic investigators. There's uh, other major literary figures. There's um, a blackmail. There's a, a courtroom drama. There's Why crime. This- the crime real estate yeah this could be in the crime blotter the history hut this could be in uh, half the huts we have here and so uh, uh this is a, a really complicated story where do we start with the story of the cock lane ghost this is in london uh kind of near uh, st paul's cathedral i mean i i guess you start with uh cock lane london and the little house um uh near smithfield market where a lovely fellow named uh, William Kent lived. And uh, William Kent's uh, wife died, and he ha- had died, and he moved with um, his wife's sister, Fanny, uh, to Cock Lane, uh, which was owned by a fellow named Richard Parsons. And, and Richard Parson was like a, a, a clerk. He was a, right. a municipal bureaucrat. Right. And a supposedly respectable fellow. But uh, uh, something of more a, will happen, of a, and so they uh, they yeah. move out, and then um, uh, people begin uh, reporting weird noises in the house. 
that uh, Fanny, uh, the the woman that Kent was involved with, died of smallpox. Uh, Kent sued his landlord, which always works, and uh, that's when the weird uh, noises start. And the weird noises are coincidentally accusing William Kent of having murdered Fanny. Right, but wait, it's even weirder than that, because the ghost is called Scratching Fanny, but Fanny, before she dies, encounters the manifestation. Because there's already, uh, before she dies, uh, uh, she hears this, this scratching, which sounds like a, a cat scratching a chair. Um, and uh, someone else who's visiting her sees an apparition. Not an apparition of her, because she's alive. She's one of the first people who's terrified by this ghost. But then she dies of smallpox. And like her sister, she's pregnant when she dies, although she does not die in childbirth. And so when... They start up again in the manifestation. Suddenly, she's the ghost that she perceived ahead of time. They're sort of, uh, if we believe there are ghosts, this is a, a weirdo Cassandra effect. Right. It, well, I mean, the ghost explanation, which is not the one that Dr. Samuel Johnson finds out, spoilers, no. is that Fanny is a poltergeist focus, right? Poltergeists focus on young women, often young women in emotional crisis. So Fanny's unresolved guilt about, uh, getting it on with the, uh, in an unmarried state with the widow of her, widower of her sister created this poltergeist vortex that she perceived. Uh, and then when she died, her, uh, combination of guilt energy and poltergeistness continued to haunt the house. That would be your traditional ghosty explanation for what happened. But Dr. Samuel Johnson. But did we mention that this was complicated? Cause there's a second poltergeist focus, <laughs> uh, which is Richard Parsons, uh, daughter, uh, Betty, and, uh, also complicating things. Uh, she's a Betty. The first, Kent's first wife, uh, Fanny's sister was named Elizabeth. Of course, it was a super common name then is now. Um, and so, uh, two years later is when the, uh, the noises start up again in this, uh, uh, lodging. And, uh, at this point, uh, that's when they start talking to, uh, to young Betty and, uh, the, uh, the ghost, uh, reveals that, uh, she is here to, uh, avenge, uh, her murder. Uh, by William Kent, unless I, I gather the implication is uh, she could possibly be hushed up. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Right. Uh, the um, ongoing uh, uh, controversy of the case in which Parsons is now charging people to see the mysterious noises and, and stay in the house and whatnot. There is a, a, a great uh, what do you do about whether or not this guy is making money uh, by imposture, which is illegal under the brand new witchcraft act of about a decade prior that didn't make being a witch illegal. Instead, it said pretending to be a witch is illegal. And that was the thing that people were saying, Parsons, you're pretending to be a witch. You're a bad man. And he's like, no, no, I'm just a simple landlord who owns a ghost house. Right. And for, for credibility, he brings in another character in this story, John Moore, who's a, his longtime local uh, preacher, and he uh, attests to the uh, existence and, and validity of, of this ghost during this period when uh, people start showing up to check out the ghost. And so here's where we switch from. You don't normally see these in the same narrative. The ghost story turns into a spiritualism story before the big heyday of spiritualism. Uh, it's a precursor of that. And all of a sudden there are seances where people are uh, communicating uh, with the ghost and uh, it's a terrifying chair-scratching noise. Uh, now it'll scratch once for uh, yes and two for no. And uh, this is when uh, various 
uh, uh, famous figures uh, start showing up, like Horace Walpole, who wrote The Castle of Otranto, which is the first gothic novel, although, as we've talked about previously on the show, it's really more of a, a comic novel with supernatural in it. Uh, says you. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, partly it's because Walpole is engaging in genre bending before their genre. But anyway, we, we can't be getting back to the castle. <laughs> We're at a little house on Cock Lane. Yes. Walpole uh, doesn't hear anything. Um, he says that he came at the wrong day. There was already a giant crowd of people wanting to hear the ghost when Walpole shows up. Uh, and because of the ongoing brouhaha, uh, there is an, uh, the, the, the investigation is mounted, uh, with, uh, Samuel Johnson as, uh, the head of the committee, basically. And he goes and they give him a proper seance and he says, it's flummery and imposture and I don't believe a word of it, basically. Right. Um, and this story gets distorted over the years because guess what? Uh, Samuel Johnson, a notorious, uh, wit, uh, and successful uh, man of letters has rivals who uh, hate him and don't like his reviews of their work. And so uh, <laughs> there's a, a minor uh, playwright named Churchill who writes a spoof of the whole thing, uh, but portrays John, the Johnson character in it is portrayed as having been fooled, uh, which never really happened. But you will see in other historical references, the idea that uh, Johnson uh, was tricked and then later had to recant his story, which is not what happened. And even the original reference to this, uh, listed Johnson as having been uh, briefly uh, bamboozled, but that's uh, not correct at all. That was just uh, a, a later myth that uh, was attached to him. Uh, and again, not much later. It's like a play that uh, ran a couple of years later. And um, uh, uh, William Hogarth draws uh, the Cock Lane ghost in a number of his drawings as examples of the ridiculous foolishness that people believe. Uh, he's um, uh, uh, showing... The, uh, and, and this is part of the sort of ongoing propaganda war that makes itself, uh, like a poltergeist uh, around the ghost because the Anglican establishment, broadly speaking, doesn't hold with all this ghost talk. It doesn't want it. doesn't need it. We're doing the enlightenment now. We don't need no stinking ghosts, but the rapidly growing Methodist movement, which is the religion of the poor and the underclasses and the rural people, uh, yes. sort of like Southern Baptists in America, uh, were for a while, uh, and yes. maybe so, like, and, and these are not the, these are Methodists before they hit be, the before prairies. they chill out and, and get mortgages. Uh, yes. These are, these are old school Methodists and John Wesley, God bless him, believed in ghosts and spirits and demons and the Lord. And he wasn't going to hear no guff from some fancy pants, uh, a bishop telling him different. And that is where, uh, there's this sort of upswell of, of a wanting to believe in ghosts because, uh, John Wesley said so. And ghosts, uh, prove that there's something after death, which is what Christianity is all about. And that's what you got to have in your, in your, in your spiritual life is a firm belief in ghosts. And meanwhile, the Anglican establishment is, first of all, they don't want to hear no Methodism and really they don't want to hear no ghosts. So that is, a big part of what's going on as well in all these varying sort of uh, retellings of the story and presentations of it is uh, the, the Methodists all want to believe in ghosts. And sadly, in this case, they're wrong, but, but that's part of why it becomes such a giant deal uh, as well as just people love a good ghost story and they love a good right. possible murder story. And so uh, also uh, Oliver Goldsmith, the author of the Vicar of Wakefield, uh, he gets involved and writes uh, or almost certainly writes a pamphlet uh, sticking up for Kent, and then he uh, later fictionalizes the story as well. And so it all, as we said before, winds up in the courtroom because Parsons and his wife and uh, John Moore, his, his preacher, and uh, uh, some poor tradesman who got dragged into it are all charged with conspiracy and hauled off to court on charges that they, uh, the whole 
uh, ghost thing is just a scheme to blackmail uh, William Kent. And uh, guess what? They're found guilty. All the whole lot of them, including the poor uh, guy who probably just built the secret closet. Uh, they're they're all found guilty. Um, uh, the, the dad goes to the pillory. Uh, which is, I think, a perfect uh, uh, punishment for him. He wants to make a big screaming spectacle out of things. Put him in the pillory. Let people throw vegetables at him. Uh, other people um, get uh, maybe uh, hard labor. Seems uh, like a bad sentence for uh, for ghost fraud, but you know they were the law was the law, I guess, in those days. Well, they were falsely accusing somebody of murder and black. It's true. I guess that is pretty bad, but, but still, but sympathy uh, for them is not great. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy. I just say six yeah. months at 1763 hard labor is a crime. I would not a punishment. I would not wish on most yeah. women. Let's just put yeah. it that way. <laughs> I, I, I certainly myself, if I do get imprisoned, I don't want to do it in 1763. Right. Among the many things that is appealing about this is what if this show had a second episode? You know, what, what if, there's a whole series of Samuel Johnson ghost busting mysteries, which he and Boswell, you know, he has someone to, you know, he, he comes with a sidekick already. He's already got a to, Watson. He's already got a Watson. And, uh, uh, the idea of him going around, uh, and, and like most debunkers, eventually there's going to have to be some real ghosts showing up or we'll all be disappointed at, at the consistent fun ruining. Uh, but well, that would Samuel be... Johnson can be your Nero Wolf. He can even be, yeah. he can be the guy that sends the PCs out on their Georgian, uh, ghost breaking adventures. And he's like, um, uh, there's no such he's thing as ghosts. He's got a dictionary to finish. There's all this, there's all this <laughs> imposter going on. I've proved that the Cock Lane ghost was nothing. Now you guys go prove all these other ghosts are nothing. And of course, you could do it a la Karnacki, where about half of them are fakes and the other half are real ghosts. But if you bring proof of a real ghost to Samuel Johnson, he's like, Tish and Tosh, you're fools. And then he explains to you that you've been gulled. Um, uh, so you have to break the ghost, but you can't disturb Samuel Johnson because otherwise you won't get paid. That sweet dictionary yeah. money. And even worse, he will uh, lacerate you with his, uh, with his, with wit. his wit. Yes. It'll make you a character in a broadside. Yeah, she'll um, be remembered in an aphorism a hundred years later, and nobody wants to be an aphorism. And the footnotes will say, credulous ghost hunting dupe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it, that sounds like an episode title to me, if, if there was one. So I think it's time to declare victory and, uh, and slink away from this podcast before we are pilloried. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hellgrain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect this podcast from ghostly blackmail alongside such Patreon backers as... Ryan Leibarger. Timothy Corum. Tony Kemp. Alex Johnston. And Andrew. M. Reichart. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as nod knowingly if you're a tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>